Only once in a great while does a writer come along who defies comparison. A writer so original, he redefines the way we look at the world. Neil Stevenson is such a writer, and Snow Crash is such a novel. Weaving virtual reality, Sumerian myth, and just about everything in between with a cool, hip cyber sensibility to bring us the Gygathian, or sorry, the Gygath Ryler of the Information Age. In reality, hero protagonist delivers pizza for Uncle Enzo's Costa Nova Pizza Incorporated. But in the metaverse, he's a warrior prince, plugging headlong into the enigma of a new computer virus that's striking down hackers everywhere. He races along the neon-lit streets on a search-and-destroy mission for a shadowy virtual villain, threatening to bring about infocalypse. Snow Crash is a mind-altering romp through a future America so bizarre, so outrageous, you'll recognize it immediately. Snow Crash, by Neil Stevenson. Book Bash! Welcome to our book club podcast, where we pick a book to read each month that we then review. The best part is, you can join our book club. Just read the book with us and give your own feedback on the book and our reviews in the comments below. Be warned, if you haven't read the book and you want to listen to the show anyway, there will be spoilers. We choose the book for the next episode at the end of this one. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Bash. It's good to have you back. I know the last episode came out way too late. Hopefully this one isn't also late. I don't know yet. We'll find out together. Won't that be fun? I think it'll be fun. Today, like normal, I am joined by co-hosts Garner, Garner. and Alex. Yay. I think I said my name, Josh, if I didn't. I, I think your name, I mean, it could be Josh. It could be. I'm hoping it's You that. can just change I it to. I keep telling people it's Josh, so if I'm wrong, I'm going to be the one embarrassed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you keep, you keep using that name. <laughs> My mom's like, why do you keep calling yourself that? Today's book, as I just said in the uh, in the summary reading, was um, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Yeah, and, and I have to I have to mention for everyone here, this book was written in 1992. Yep. It's published in 92. So published, yeah. written oh. throughout the late 80s, early 90s, probably. Yeah. 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 Back at the uh, the birth of cyber, uh, the cyberpunk genre near near that era. I will be um, completely honest. It is the fact of when it was published that is the most redeeming factor of this book. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, I noted that throughout. It's like they have Google Earth. They have Second Life. Yeah, it's really God. interesting, a lot of things that they foretold in this book. Yeah. Before we completely dive in, <laughs> um, I believe you recommended this book, Josh. It was one of my recommendations. And um, you read it before previously. I had. Okay, so uh, I always ask this. Why did you recommend this book with so, extra sardonic twang? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm feeling it all. I'm twanged. Um, the, uh, 
it might not come as any surprise, but I'm a fan of the cyberpunk genre. Oh, and wow. this book actually had been recommended to me by someone who claimed to also be in that genre um, fan club. And uh, I had started to read it once in high school, and um, the in- introduction of the book is, is uh, kind of captivating, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, in its bizarreness. And then... Um, I eventually got around to it later, and I thought, this would be kind of fun to share with some people, because in my adulthood, I had lost contact with the person that had originally recommended the book, and I had no one left to talk to about it. And um, and so I thought it might be fun to get other opinions out there. And I think there is some neat ideas in the storyline. Um, uh, yeah, actually. I'll tell you what, they got some pretty wild ideas. Yeah. And... Um, while I enjoyed it, I definitely knew it was a bizarre one. Okay. So um, so that's why we recommended it. And uh, typically we just go through our likes and then some dislikes and maybe some conversation there. So, like, I now challenge you again. <laughs> what, what did you like about the book? Um, what I liked was... I thought it was interesting for sort of a science fiction-esque novel to include a lot of, like, history and religion in its in its world-building and plot. Like, I get the feeling that the reason Neil Stevenson wrote this book is because he had just done, like, some fucking, I don't know, like, college research paper on language and or um, uh, religious history because... And I didn't do a lot of the fact-checking myself, but it seems like a lot of the history that they're using to sort of build their their science future um, is grounded in reality. But then the conclusions they make towards the end are sort of silly at times. I'll tell you what about that. The There was this aspect, and it's what made me stop to check the publication base of the book. I was uh-huh. like, did some hack writer get together... <laughs> read a bunch of Wikipedia articles and then write a cyberpunk book. And I was like, I must know. And then when I looked at the thing, I was like, this guy wrote this book about Wikipedia. Yeah. So he pretty much went through like, I just went on like a Sumerian mythology bender. Yeah. At the library. At the library. With library yep. cards. Library cards. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know what? That changes how I feel about you know what Neil, Neil, Neil Stevenson did because at first I was just like, what the hell? Why, why am I getting like these huge encyclopedic info dumps? Yeah, there's like history lessons, chapters, of and history worse, lessons. it's done by Siri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it's like yeah, Siri or Cortana, Cortana. <laughs> so so there was this aspect that I I kept thinking about. I was just like, yeah, there is like you're talking about this whole this mythology religion. You know, combined, and there's there's this part of the book where you know he he really catches you up on what he read at the library. Oh yeah. And, and at, but at first, I you know at first I was like, this hack is like telling me about what he read on Wikipedia last night. And then I, mean, I realized he had no Wikipedia to do. It. Yeah, it's definitely one of those where it's like, what if the metaphor was literal, sort mm-hmm. of scenarios. Um, but at the same time, as a thought experiment, I enjoyed that. What was really interesting is, is like, what if the metaphor were literal? He does that a lot, but then, like, twists it 
Yeah. <laughs> like, he, like, twists it with the Tower of Babel one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, well, it's not literal in this case, though. It's actually, like, their <laughs> astronomy right. thing, right? Yeah. Like, like okay. It's literal when it needs to be literal, and it's not literal when it, no. Definitely. So what else do you like about it? Um, I actually do like the character YT for the most part. I thought she was a fun character. Yeah. Um, um and, uh, which I think was definitely needed, because if the book had been all about hero protagonists, I don't know that I could have made it. I mean, to be honest, I mean, this is my opinion, but I felt like YT was the protagonist. Yeah. Of the book. Yeah, and that, and that, if I were to sum up the book, it could have been renamed YT's Thrilling Adventure, <laughs> a YA novel. I mean, it, she's she definitely has more of a character arc than Hero does. Yeah, who I'm not 100 percent certain had an arc. Uh, he had the like. There's this part of the book where I felt like it was Neuromancer. Like, he was satirizing Neuromancer. Because Hero's arc is actually the same kind of arc that um, Case, Cage... Yes, Case. Case. His his arc is like, oh, I miss my girlfriend. Uh, and, like, that's, like, almost his entire arc is about that. Mm-hmm. And Hero's arc is, I, I you know, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and I miss my girlfriend. <laughs> and instead of drugs, he delivers pizzas. Yeah. That one time. <laughs> well, it's implied that he'd been delivering pizzas for a while. Okay, I want I gotta comment on this because I, I hadn't read the summary until just recording it, yeah. which probably is obvious by my flubs. But um, I was kind of thrown off that it's mentioned how he's a pizza delivery man for this thing, when like the first event in the book is showing how he fails to deliver a pizza and then quits that job. Yeah. Like quits, <laughs> like, like immediately. It's like, well, I fucked this up. I'm done. And then it's just like, how can you call him a pizza delivery man? It never delivers a pizza. It doesn't deliver a pizza. <laughs> yeah, that's why Neil Stevenson's a hack. People, <laughs> Chekhov's gun. They said he would deliver a pizza, and then he never did. You know who does deliver a pizza? Y- YT. YT. Because she's the protagonist. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, to me, the intro is actually, like, a huge saving grace for this book. Because you, like, open it up, and it starts going on about, like, this extremely extreme, and then more extreme. It's like, it's like almost like a Mountain Dew commercial about a pizza delivery driver. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I Like, I had to stop for a moment and be, you know, I had to keep checking the time. I was like, has it been two hours? They're still talking about pizza delivery. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, wait a second, Why? Is this really, really, really important? It's a, it was a really. I mean, I never read a book or listened to a book that started with this. Just this guy's ludicrous day job. Oh yeah. It definitely sets up the book well, though. It sets up the different sub city state things that they have. It sets up heroes' kind of determination, even though he doesn't quite show it in the same way later on. Right. And it sets up a lot of his just personality traits and stuff. Yeah, I think it's really decent framing for the setting on a whole. You know, just like, this is how extreme and, and abstract things are getting. You know, oh, yeah. Like, you know, I like to dream about hyper-capitalism, but Neil Stevenson, way back <laughs> in the 80s, was like, what if capitalism went just 
just completely bonkers where everyone's wearing bulletproof armor. That was like one Turn of my... the dial up to 11. Yeah, up to 11. That was one of my favorite parts. Like, every motherfucker who gets attacked is wearing bulletproof armor. Yes. <laughs> every son of a bitch. Yes. <laughs> Everybody had it. I mean, even YT's like a teenage girl is doing, you know, doing her like after school job, presumably. What the hell? Does she go to school? I, I couldn't tell. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I couldn't tell. I was like, is it that hyper-capitalist? She'd be like, well, you should quit school. You got a job. You graduated. <laughs> well, she does have a school outfit that she puts back on at one point. So you kind of assume that she goes to school or does something earlier in the day and then delivers at night. But... Delivers. and It was so <laughs> weird. Like, I, I kept trying to figure out, like, what it was going on. Like, this is this is her supposedly after-school job. She's wearing body armor. Yeah. Right? <laughs> With a hypodermic needle up her cooch. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Oh my god. And and she's got like some sort of like super hyper like damn near would be illegal in our times super glue. Right? Like you could hurt somebody with that glue, but she's just like whatever. Whatever. What do you mean like the loogie guns? Yeah, they well not just the loot guns, like the harpoon alone. Oh, the harpoon. Well, yeah, and, and she's it's got magnetic. the she's got the stickers. Oh, the oh, stickers, yeah. stickers yeah, that yeah, require yeah. this ridiculous <laughs> like right. you I need like an industrial stake sander to take them off. Yeah, and I'm like, wait a second, what would happen if you put them on someone personally? I, I I was actually waiting for the moment in the book, and I I don't know, like maybe it was just me, but I was just waiting for YT to put one of those on like one of her assailants, like over their mouths. <laughs> And that's it. They can't get it off their mouth. Stickers on guy's face. Yeah, she just puts it on her face. They can't see. I mean, like, to me, those things are one of the best <laughs> forms of uh, less than lethal force. Or maybe not lethal, because probably will be. Like, how do you get it off their fucking face? So the stickers, I spent a lot of time thinking about the stickers, and I could tell Neil Stevenson did not. No. No. As a guy who had to work with industrial solvents and stuff, I was like, these fucking stickers, man. These... These are frightening. They, they scare me. But, uh... So what did you like about it? Uh, let's see here. Stickers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was disappointed that Neil Stevenson didn't explore the stickers. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, I definitely liked that the book was quite prescient. It's actually really bizarre. You brought it up earlier, but, like, he uses Google Earth over and over... <laughs> Unfortunate, like today in our modern world, it doesn't seem very hip or cool. In fact, it seems actually really just benign and boring. But it was kind of interesting to realize that Neil Stevenson had predicted that what if I wanted to know a thing and then he just asked Wikipedia? And then because he doesn't want to fucking read it, he tells Cortana to, to read it for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he essentially is just like read my read the Wikipedia article to me, and I'll ask you questions about it. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty crazy. So like, it, I really liked how um, he actually predicted a lot of things. Like, there's this whole the whole FBI corporate culture scene with oh, yeah. YT's mom, which is weird. Like, to be honest, I do have to comment on that. What purpose did that chapter serve? I still don't know. I was gonna say like, there's a lot. Love that. Like, having, you know... Let me, let me ask you something, Otis, and you're at the table. You know how when you watch a movie by yourself, and then later you're like, I'm going to recommend this to a friend. And then you rewatch it, 
considering like what that friend friend might take from the film, and suddenly it's a whole different perspective. Oh uh, yeah, I definitely had that going through this book a second time, and and that was one of the things that stuck out to me is like Neil Stevenson spins you know several chapters in this book going on about like world building shit where he's just like describing how this thing operates. And for this example, it's, like, how the feds operate. Yeah. And he goes into, like, this long-ass chapter all about YT's mom's job and how it, how it operates and what they do and what her office life is like and, and the bullshit that her, she's got to put up with for this job. And, and it's just, like, none of it is relevant to the storyline. Well, it kind of does set it up because in the end they reveal that the feds are the ones working on this super devastating snow crash program. Right. But at the same time, they even even Hero reiterates that point later, right before it comes up, that the feds were programming this, because he talks about how he doesn't want to get a fed job, which is what most of the hackers do, because none of them know what the fuck they're working on, mm-hmm. and it takes forever due to the bureaucracy. That's enough to sum it up and be like, yeah, so they're doing it, and none of them know what they're doing, which is what saves them from being inoculated by the owned virus that they're building because they're all working on such small portions of it that they can't infect themselves. I think it just depends on who reads it, really, because, like, some people, like, if you were tabletop gaming, some people just want to go from one scene to the next and they don't want any world-building stuff. Some people do want the background. They want to know what's going on and even speculate themselves on another story, possibly, or what yeah. else could be going on. Because, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'd like to comment on this, Garner, but, like, the uh, the whole thing with the, uh, the deliverator being a pizza, pizza delivery guy at the beginning, describing the importance of delivering pizza for the mafia and all that, like, doesn't really come into play later. The it's fact that Hero nuts. is, like, this insane badass car driver for the mafia delivering pizza whose whose very life is on stake for getting this pizza on time to its location like does not serve any purpose to the point it's the total cold Chekhov's gun that they put on the mantle and then forgot was there you know (laughs) pizza delivery itself doesn't serve any but it does set up a lot of uncle enzo's personality for later how he does a family business he's very like if you fail to deliver the pizza uncle enzo's gonna come down and apologize personally and and I, i do know that it sets up a lot for kind of his character but at the same time we get a lot of interaction with him with yt and they spend that chapter following the uh franchulet guy Mm -hmm. who works downtown um, who isn't really an important character. Oh, it's nuts, like... So, I mean, I mean, just to comment on that, I agree. It seems like the whole pizza delivery, two hours of it, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of world building just to pretty much set up Uncle Enzo. I actually agree with Alex. That's, a whole, that's the whole... That must be the point. But to me, like, it's so overdone, and it's just so, like, done, and, like, so thought out to the extreme... That um, it borders on a joke. And so later, way later in the book, actually, Hero actually meets Uncle Enzo. And the first thing he says, he says, sorry about the car. And I, because it was an audiobook, I almost wanted, like, you know, like some symbols getting hit right there. <laughs> I mean, like, ah! Yeah, ding! Exactly. It was like, wow, that is the most delayed joke. There you go, Neil Stevenson. Yeah. Remember that whole car scene at the beginning of the book? 
Had nothing to do with anything course, except for to set up this joke. Course, what does later. Uncle Enzo say? It's forgotten. <laughs> yeah, it's forgotten. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it does not matter. Yeah. Like, I was just like, is Newland Stevenson fucking with me? Did he do all this as a joke? Yeah. So, uh, let's see here. Other things that I liked about the book. Um, so, I liked it. Like I mentioned, the prescience. I liked, um, you know, for its time and all that. I really liked the tone of the book. It was very sarcastic. Everyone just treated everything like it was just a scam. Oh, yeah. Like it was this one endless scam after another. Like whenever they would describe things or how people are, they're just like, oh, yeah, he's wearing his cheap knockoffs because he can't hack it. And um, what Neil Stevenson, I felt, did with good of his characters is everyone kind of sizes up everyone. Oh, yeah. Whenever he writes a perspective... The person looking at them sizes up the other person, which, at least from my perspective, yeah, I do that all the time. I feel like everyone's doing that. They're kind of sizing up people. Mm-hmm. And so the book, I felt um, I felt like he really translated that well. Um, and then the other thing that I liked, I liked that YT and Hero, and frankly, most of the characters in the book, um, knew what they were doing had a plan, you know, when problems arise, they, they weren't, like, completely shit in their pants. They had no they had no moments of existential crisis or <laughs> doubt. They never cried. <laughs> they, they actually seemed like confident people. So, it, um, so it's a goddamn shame that I finally read a book where there's actually, like, sane, confident um, people. I fucking hated that book. <laughs> there you go. So why'd you like it? What did, what did you like about it, Alex? What I liked about it was kind of the witty humor in it. Like YT standing for yours truly or the joke on hero protagonist. I mean, it says his full name, I think, once in the entire book. And I like barely even caught it and can't remember it because mm-hmm. he just goes by hero. Yeah. Um, right. Just a lot of that small witty stuff that kind of reminds me of Terry Pratchett's writing. Um, stuff that you don't necessarily catch until later. Um, or sometimes you catch it right away with your protagonist. But um, that was really my favorite part of the book. Is just Well, he lampshades it, too. Like, when, when YT meets him, she's like... Hero protagonist, that's a stupid name. Yeah. She's fucking named yours truly. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? But he lampshades it completely. All right. But that was really my favorite part of the book. It's just that small stuff kind of littered throughout. Um, like you said, I also liked the written in 91 and foretells all this other stuff that comes about in the real world, like Google, Siri. Um, the metaverse is basically Second Life. Which at this point has died down, but yeah. Well, I'll um, tell you what though, the metaverse to me, like even though he put like all this emphasis on like the look, the look you had in the metaverse, um, pretty much today though, it's like where, like he talked about like where you hang out in the metaverse. Even that was important, and I feel like even on the internet today, you could, it's like that, right? You're like, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, like oh you you just spend all your time on t- Tumblr. You're one of those. SJW Tumblr people, right? You know, like there's this whole Tumblrina. Yeah, you're Tumblrina, right? And you'd be like, you're some you're some angry white guy on Reddit, right? So <laughs> I don't know. Like I felt like he did kind of anticipate that we were gonna end up like in, there would be social 
cues on the internet. Mm-hmm. Oh right. yeah, yeah. Um, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. All right, I don't tell us what you like. No, I'm done. You're done. You no. know, I oh. <laughs> actually, I forgot to finish my corporate culture thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> my uh, I just found that aspect like actually having work for the man, mm-hmm. right? And especially, like, literally have the feds stand over you while you do a test and do work and stuff. And, like, even the part where um, YT's mom needs to go to take the piss test, and she describes how no one's allowed to look at her while she does it because, you know, it's insensitive, and then they might have to go to, insens- to sensitivity training. Yeah. I was just like, man, this guy is nailing the ever-living shit out of nor- corporate culture, and I was just like, oh, yeah. what did he do? Like, you know, I, I was kind of wondering, like, what did this guy do in 1992? Like, <laughs> like, like, it sounded so bad, but it was so like that. It was like all this, this hyper-strict, super-regulated nonsense. Like, even a part where, like, somebody came in too early or somebody came in too late and these sorts of attitudes where they're discussing, like, how the company's, like, trying to, like, glean something about your personality by like the minutiae of your activities oh yeah like how long it took you to read the email for the day oh yeah like they notice oh absolutely absolutely down to a chart and so it's that aspect where like everything was getting measured and stuff i just felt like he nailed nailed it nailed the shit out of it even though I largely felt that section was pointless. And that's... Actually, that's my feeling about lots of the book. There's, like, all this really well-written stuff. Like, like it just really bizarre things. That keeps coming up in a book. Like, people have, like, weird shit written on their forehead. Yeah. But he brings it up at the beginning of the book. It's like, most people don't have a judicial system. <laughs> they just, just brand you on the spot and call it good. Yeah. And so then that keeps coming up. And it, it's actually part of the world bit world building where you can actually just like look at somebody and see essentially like a list of their crimes yeah i have to say is like as kind of bizarre of a picture as stevenson paints in this i feel like the characters react to it really naturally you know like like their responses to how the world works and and how people are making their stakes in that world just seem to really fit well well, it's like when something weird does happen, even then they start like hyperanalyzing it. Like the weird rat dog things. Oh, yeah. They're like, even the characters in the book are like, what the fuck is yeah. going on here? And when they eventually meet the dude, I think his name's Ing, he hangs yeah. out in yeah. the car. And then they're like, how the fuck? And they realize that he's like buying all this Freon in order to stay alive. Oh, but, no, they, no, no. but they connect those dots. Like the characters yeah, yeah. are constantly thinking about like how people are like surviving and what the hell they're doing. And so, like I said, Stevenson does a really good job of like having characters size each other up and constantly thinking about like what other people do and why they do them and things like that. He, he just might have gone too long on that. I don't know. Like, because now we're going to get into what you didn't like. Yeah, I will um, springboard off of uh, some of that, like, um, starting with something I kind of liked about the book. Okay. That was, um, I did like a lot of Stevenson's sort of writing style when it came to, like, describing this world-building stuff, mm-hmm. because you would often frame it at, from a perspective of a character, you know, like, the all the stuff about being a p- pizza delivery driver was framed through Hero's 
perspective. Like, as a third-party person sitting in his head listening to his thoughts about the franchise and, and what it means to do that job and how he really doesn't want to be that guy that makes Uncle Enzo have to leave you know, the bedroom with some young mistress to come grovel at the feet of some fat pizza um, ordering persons, you know, and that sort of stuff. And then all the things about the Fedland is is done through the perspective of YT's... um, It was sort of done through, like, YT's idea of what her mother feels about the job. Right. You know, which is... It's sort of extended and bizarre, but it's done in such a way that feels natural and comfortable and... And there's all this opinion added to what's are just the sort of facts to it. Well, even the rat things do it from the rat things perspective. Exactly. Except when Which the is such weird parts of the book. But but then there's a point where Stevenson just sort of like stops doing that for like a very important part of the story, which is all the history bullshit. There is literally like two fucking chapters of Hero talking to a robot librarian about Sumerian culture and and all of their lore and mythology that is just so goddamn dry. Well, it's, I mean, it feels like he just ripped it right out of a book. That's why it was like, yeah. did he wiki this shit? Yeah, did he just exactly. Did he straight plagiarize like, wiki? I'm believing it because it feels like a textbook. Jesus Christ. <laughs> My problem was like, Hero, why do you give a fuck? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but like you know, like t- well, especially because he starts off saying like you know he talks about how his girlfriend Juanita is into this shit. Right, he yeah. he is not, and right. that was like the failing of their relationship is that he couldn't give a fuck about religion, and she's like I'm born again weirdo, and uh, and then she gives him this library that's full of all of her doctrinations, and he's just like oh yeah I gotta learn all about this so I can sleep with her later. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's why I say hero protagonist can't be the protagonist. I mean, if he is, he's like one of the weakest protagonists ever. He, he, he doesn't even feel like a good guy. He feels like the slime ball is just trying to like get in her pants, and he'll do anything to do it. He'll do anything yeah. to get in her pants. And um, of course, the other thing I really don't like about the book that made me feel legitimately uncomfortable listening to it because um, I did the audiobook thing. Is um, I caught wind might be your rant of the evening, and so I think I'll let you take the reins on that one. Well, I don't know. Are you talking about that fucking sex scene? Yes. Jesus, how long did it need to be? Did it need to be at all? <laughs> <laughs> what I couldn't understand was like, apparently it's all like some sort of trap. <laughs> he didn't sell that very well. He, he was really trying to sell that YT wanted to get fucked bad. No, because I think Well, it's... she did. Yeah. But she just forgot about her Denata. Yeah, he forgot. He was like, I have, I'm trying to trap... This is all a secret mission. What? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's it's not actually, like, the worst part of the book for me. I, You know, you mentioned the audiobook, and by the way, having to listen to this very lengthy sex scene, I have to say, this <laughs> happens a lot. You know, you know what? I slam Brandon Sanderson, but you know what? There's no fucking in his books. And, you know... Brandon Sanderson, I'm giving you an ex- I'm giving you an extra credit point for resisting the urge to write any fucking in your books. Brandon Sanderson. Now, who was the audio guy? The guy who um, oh, who, read who the voiced book? the book. Uh, let me look because I forgot to mention him. That guy, for a single dude, nailed it. Yeah, I sometimes I was 
kind of surprised that it was just a single dude and not a full voice cast. Narrated by Jonathan Davis. This Jonathan actually does quite a few books on Audible. Jonathan Davis is a badass at voicing. Oh yeah. He does a whole bunch of characters. He even sells that YT is, you know, some flippant 15-year-old girl. <laughs> yeah. Right? He sells Uncle Enzo with the, he, he does totally the Italian voice. He sells like the dad um, slang in this book too. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I really, I forgot to mention it, but Mr. Davison completely crushed it. I mean, I, I think that if I had re- uh, read the book aloud, I would have hated the book even more. <laughs> but yeah. Davison liked it. I don't, I, you know, like, what can I say about the sex scene? Like, it, it goes on for almost like 15 minutes. Yeah. I'm, I might be exaggerating. Who knows? Maybe it was ten solid minutes. <laughs> and see, like, I knew it was there, but to me it was just a thing. I'm just, like, totally glazed over it. And I'm like, why are you guys ranting about this? It wasn't that long. <laughs> it was so bad. Like, I'm just like, uh, you know, like, the, the problem was, as you know, after a while I was like, wait a second, what the fuck is happening here? To me, I mean, I just couldn't understand why Stevenson thought he needed to put this in the book at all. Like, on a meta level, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because, like, okay, maybe you want to have a sex scene for, like, the spice of it. But then he picks, like, the two most un... Like, the two characters that I just would not have ever imagined going into the start of this book to end up being the the objects of this sex scene. The fucking cold-blooded mutant murderer... And a 15-year-old girl. Not, by the way, the, the murderer is a grown man. And so the villain weird. of the book. And the villain. <laughs> and then YT, our, our spunky 15-year-old main character chick, who's like totally into it. And, and I mean, at least there was that. <laughs> I don't know. So, I think it sets up a lot, though. You know, YT gets onto this boat. She needs a way off. Yeah. And we need a way to deal with Raven for a little while. Certainly. So... And it shows off more of her gear, you know, her last-ditch effort that she mentions a couple times in the book before. You know, you never really find out what the Daynata is until the sex scene when (laughs) she's like, oh, fuck, I just screwed my boyfriend because he's asleep forever. So it sets up her escape, knocking Raven out, allowing her to get his prestige and get into the metaverse to talk to Hero again. Uh, it gives uh, more of her personality for how she's this no-shits-given badass girl who I wants totally to do what I totally get that, wants, and, and I get that she's sort of attracted to the danger of it, but but it's not like she hasn't been told that Raven's a bad guy and murderer. And then he pretty much is cops to it in their, their weird date scene in the fish bar. And then there's a moment where he leaves her alone to go murder some people. Literally. He literally leaves. Like, hey, baby, hey, baby. Yeah, just stay here. Goes outside and kills a bunch of and, people. And the overtone of their whole date and, like, the walk to this date is just how everybody is fucking scared shitless of this giant mutant murderer. And then and then she, still, she waits there patiently. Makes no attempt at this point to escape. Not just because of where she is, but it's like Stevenson could have put that break anywhere in this scenario he could have been taking her back gotten to the center of the raft and then been like oh wait babe i gotta go kill some people before we fuck and then she's like i'm gonna escape now but no we we gotta we gotta do that five to ten minutes of our life i'll tell you what you know what's really crazy about it though is that stevenson 
you know, obviously had to make the choice to have an extremely horny 15-year-old girl who, I mean, to his credit, early on in the book, she's constantly mentioning how she thinks everyone's checking her out oh, and yeah. trying to get in her pants. She thinks Hero's trying to get in her pants. Yeah. She's constantly thinking and about that. And she mentions that, right? that she's sexually active with her boyfriend. Yeah, so it seems very realistic that, you know, teenage girls, they think yeah. about this shit, right? And uh, so, but Neil Stevenson, though, then had to be like, yeah, but I'm not just going to imply that she fucks the villain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write about it in detail. You know, you know, let me tell you what I got out of that scene. It reminded me that uh, YT must have forearms like Popeye. Because <laughs> I've been working out a lot lately, right? Like I'm doing nothing but push-ups and bent-over rows and squats. And I thought about it and I was like, this gal's day job is to hang on a stronger-than-steel wire while people try to fling her off with their motorized vehicles. Oh, yeah. In the scene, in the sex scene, because it's burnt into my brain. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> Thank you. Um, they actually describe... How she, they, Like, he tries to get away from her. It's a part of the sex scene. He's trying to get away. I, I don't know. Like, I tried not to imagine it too much. But, unfortunately, Neil's there, narrating it. And uh, but she's like, oh no, you're not getting away. And she essentially climbs on him with her her huge arms. And it reminds of the point that yeah, her day job is holding on for dear life. And I was just like, fucking YT's forearms must be absolutely killer. It completely changed my image of her. Like it's the kung fu grip. She she must have like she must have like this like svelte body and just these huge Popeye arms <laughs> just to hold on for dear life. At, you know, seventy miles an hour. All the time. So that, that's what I got out of that scene. Oh, yeah. That where they never brought up the fact that she's a cyborg. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I did not like that scene. So you did not like um, some things. Is there anything else you want to tell us you did not like about the book? Oh, probably. I can't think of any right now, so somebody else take it in. I think it's my turn. I did not like, in the beginning, they had a disconnect in the timeline they kept switching back oh yeah from hero to yt but That's hero right. was two weeks in the future from yt who was still the night of the pizza delivery oh yeah yeah and that was just and it's like half the book they're going through this and there's this yeah. disconnect in the timeline and i'm like wait what who knows what where yeah they don't finally just... sync up until the uh the um concert yeah okay yeah so that definitely sucked <laughs> i um to be honest, though, um, I tend to listen more if I feel like there's some sort of discontinuity. <laughs> right? Like, I'll be doing something, and I'll be like, what the fuck? Cause and effect here, what's happening? And so then I'll listen more intently. And so, in a way, that's probably the only way I was able to pay attention. Pay attention. <laughs> so, it, what else? Um, I don't know. I think that's my main complaint. Well, okay. While I think the Siri whatever he was, Jeeves, was kind of dry. <laughs> I think he also did a good job with his personality. You know, he didn't conjecture anything. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. he did fully stayed consistent with, um, which I appreciated with, like, because the, this uh, robot librarian establishes really early on that he uh, can't do metaphor. And then constantly Hero tries to make him do metaphor. <laughs> and he ends up just asking, you know, what did the previous dude think? So it's like yeah. reading Wikipedia and then like a whole bunch of Wikipedia notes. Like, what are the change logs here? It quite literally <laughs> felt like what if Cortana would actually read like 
sort through the, the comments section and find the good comments. <laughs> yes. And then Cortana would be like, but a person who can do this shit said this. Yeah. And we're like, yeah. thanks for finding the useful comments. I mean, I'll tell you what. Uh, someone out there who hasn't read Snow Crash, and don't, don't read it. <laughs> but all you need to do <laughs> is make a algorithm that finds the good comments. We, we apologize to all the listeners who have read it to join us for this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Your sacrifice is appreciated. Yeah. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I know the... Good. Well, I was going to say, my other major point, which I forgot, was the end was so anticlimactic. Holy... It's just like, oh, yeah. they have this awesome yeah. chase scene in the metaverse, Raven gets there first, and then Hero's like, nope, I already stopped you ten chapters ago because I wrote this program. I'll be honest, I actually <laughs> forgot about that until I got to the end of this second go-through and was just like, oh yeah, I drew all those conclusions in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I actually... I think I made up the ending because Stevenson didn't. <laughs> I have to confess, I really really didn't like this book and um so i actually finished it a few hours ago okay (laughs) like i uh it was very hard for me to listen to this book like i would try to do anything i had to like i had to play like mind games to make it so i wouldn't like browse the internet or you you were telling us before we hit the record button that your your desktop computer's keyboard is now dust free yeah, because of this book. Yeah, like I realized that if I could do anything other than just listen to this book, <laughs> I would. I would completely tune it out. Yeah. So I unplugged my keyboard so that I could not type into a search engine <laughs> and read anything because that's disconnected it's hard for me to read and listen at the same time oh yeah so i disconnected my keyboard and got a toothbrush a toothbrush and like a little thing of water and a towel and i listened to hours of that book scrubbing my <laughs> keyboard with a toothbrush <laughs> i can't say that i was much better well i am not quite so anti-book I was glad I was read it on, like, a historical book. This was important in literature aspect. Yeah. But I spent, like, 20 hours painting a bedroom and bathroom while listening to this book just so that I could get through it. I I actually had a milder version, I guess, of this sufferance, which was that um, I, w- I listened to it at work often, but it would get to a point where just, like, my brain was basically singing like an impatient child in my ear. Going like, let's do something else. This is really boring. I need to do something other than this book. And so I'd be like, all right, all right, all right. I'll pause the book. And let's listen to an hour podcast or something else. And then we'll yeah. try it again. <laughs> or maybe we'll pick it up tomorrow. <laughs> my, my entire challenge with this, though, is I it's very hard for me to place why I didn't like it so much. Right? Like, it shouldn't be that bad. I like science fiction. I like, you know, zany world building. I like characters that aren't sniveling, whiny little brats. <laughs> I should like awesome action sequences with gratuitous violence and monomolecular knives and villains so over the top they can kill a submarine full of sailors by themselves. I should like this book. I just, I should like it. <laughs> but it was like in small doses only. 
I, yeah. I would just like just only a little bit at a time and a little bit of time. And the big problem for me, the number one problem, and I think I think I could just sum it up like this: the conflict, the actual conflict of the story, is not revealed until if you're listening on audiobook until you've listened for eight hours. Yeah. So if you've listened to half of this book, they're like, "There's this thing called Snow Crash, and it's bad." They, they start to hint at Snow Crash before that. Like, I think, like, five hours into the book, someone tries to deal some Snow Crash to someone. Yeah. And then it's only until, like, way later to where David gets actually Snow Crash that, uh, that you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess the story's about how Snow Crash is bad. But there's this problem. But then they don't even tell you, like, what happens, what actually bad happened to David until way later. Yeah. They're like, halfway through. There's all kinds of problems with it. Like, first off, like, Hero... Like, I, I thought in Neuromancer that Case seemed like he was just a drift in the ocean surrounded by people who actually gave a shit about something. Yeah. Like, Hero... I was like, what does Hero want? Is this guy about to have a Fight Club existential crisis? Like, why is he motivated to do this? Is it literally because he's trying to get a paycheck? The whole time I just thought that YT... And Hero were trying to score a huge paid info payday. Yeah. When the book ended and they did not score a huge info payday, and then I guess the story was about. Well, no, they had. Because remember, Uncle Enzo pays him for the information on the library. Right. And then he decides to go to the raft anyway. Right. Because. To get his. Just get Juanita. Yeah, he needs to get his boontang. <laughs> That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, the whole adventure felt so weird to me. It's like, these guys who are doing their day job, and a lot of the book is about, like, people who are doing their, essentially their day job. I mean, an yeah. adventure day job, I guess. I mean, it felt like his day job was to go to Wikipedia. Well, what's interesting is, like, because um, even the guy who finds out, like, the original ploy to this whole thing, that you can program people's brains with, with the Sumerian language, basically. When he discovers that... He tries to sell it to Rife. Yeah. Like, that's his, his goal isn't that we've got to save the people from the Sumerian language, you know, get that nanshub. He's like, no, you know, this, this fat, greasy capitalist could really buy this information from me and we'll make bank. Yeah, we're going to make some money. I'm definitely not going to die in a puddle in some concert later, you know? <laughs> I don't, like, I don't, I just, I don't like, I felt like the heroes... You know, YT, and that's what I said. Like, in the end, I was just like, the book should have been renamed YT's Wild Adventure Night, right? Because that's what it felt like to me. It's just like, yeah. YT's Wild Week. Because um, otherwise, the characters felt like they didn't have, like, any reason to be so invested in the Snow Crash virus or to give much shit about it. And the Snow Crash virus, the whole, like, angle of it took forever. You know what I did learn from this, this book and why I think that, in a way, I subtly... Really didn't like it. Is that Be- people in the 90s had a really funny idea for the word hacker? I <laughs> 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 um, no. Back then, hackers were good. Like, even in the real world, if you look up the history of the word hacker, they were oh, yeah. good back then. But, yeah. anyways. Besides Andrea. No, no, no. Um, to me, there was times I was like, did Neil Stevenson run a pen and paper role playing game and write down how all it went? And then slowly, <laughs> slowly do it in a book. Because this is about, like, how it would go in a pen and paper role-playing game. 
And let me tell you, the plots in those games are only fucking interesting because the people there were the ones making the choices. I know they're boring. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just like, I know they're boring. They're usually filled with these cardboard characters. I mean, a hero protagonist could have been a character in a role-playing game. It's like some sort of hacker, sword fighter, pizza delivery driver, super badass, who does, you know, I guess delivers pizza. Right, like he just can't achieve it. Life, he just can't get it together. And I was like, I do like how YT actually calls him out towards the late half of the book. Oh yeah, when when he's like, well, yeah, I'm gonna go get with my girlfriend and things will be better. And she's like, why? Why would they be better? What have you done different? Yeah, you you still don't know who the hell you are. You're a loser, hero. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't like. I'm so to me. I'll tell you what. Because the conflict, the core conflict of the plot is Snow Crash and the mystery of Snow Crash, which is not very mysterious. I'm sorry, Neil Stevenson. It, it didn't take me long to figure it out that people could get sick from bitmaps. Yeah. Wow. Jesus. Morty. I don't know. Like it's a like like he's like oh, no, the mystery, the mystery, and I was like, this could only happen if it was a role playing game. There's only that's. Only players at a role-playing game would find it, would not put this together. If you're just <laughs> listening, of course you're going to put this shit together. So, um, let me tell you, this book actually made it hard for me to want to run my own mystery-based role-playing game. I was like, I need to cut some shit out. Uh-oh. If my game is even half as boring as this fucking shit, I need to speed it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Garner wouldn't recommend the book to anybody. How about you, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I, I wholeheartedly... <laughs> refuse to recommend this book oh boy uh, now i'm in a hot speed um <laughs> i mean you read it once and recommended it to us i yeah i'm saying i'm already guilty here i've done it to you all um <laughs> i mean i guess we'll give you the benefit of the doubt it was like 10 years between readings you forgot a lot of it but. yeah no um i mean god if if you are a fan of the cyberpunk genre and like you know you've you've read say some of that older shit like um, fucking, uh, God, you've been saying his name all night, and I can't remember. What, Neil Stevenson? No, the other the, guy. Neuromancer? Gibson. Will G- G- Gibson, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Gibson. If you like William Gibson, I'd say give this a try, because I definitely think, um, uh, Stevenson was inspired by that genre. Yeah, yeah, small comment on that. I actually think the best redeeming factor of this book is if, if you could go in knowing that the book is probably a satire of Neuromancer, and that the whole thing's a comedy... It might be genius. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely recommend it. I think it's an interesting period piece for a past-future novel. Um, but otherwise, it's not. It's you're, you're not going to get much right here, guys. It's it's no. It's nothing that they would make you read in a school room because it's a literary masterpiece. Well, plus a fifteen-year-old gets fucked by the villain. Also that. You know, oh, you, you, oh, yeah, sorry. You'll see that chapter coming a mile away. You can skip it. It's not hard. <laughs> and you will miss nothing. <laughs> You'll be better for it. Don't worry. She explains what happens later. <laughs> God damn it. I think I'm also in the same place. I would only recommend it with stipulations. I think yeah. that if you like older science fiction books... You'll probably like it. I think it does not fit in with modern genre and modern writing very much. Um, but I, like I said earlier, I think it's a good piece in the historical literary timeline. Uh, you know, I'll say this. I can recommend it to someone, actually. Oh. 
if you have world builders disease <laughs> and you want to see a problem who a person who also has world builder disease do you need a mirror you want to see what happens if you read this book and like it then yes continue with your world builders disease but if you read this book and you're like man this guy has no story and he just wrote a very compelling setting so serious apology to our friend brady yeah you got, if you got world builders disease you should read this book. <laughs> he totally should, though. He should. Yeah, Brady, read the damn book. Yeah. I'm sorry in advance. You got, I don't know how you got this far in this podcast not reading the book, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I didn't spoil anything either. There's no spoilers in this book. It has no plot. <laughs> oh, that is harsh. Okay, I think we can put the lid on this jar, put it in the back of the shelf, labeled leftovers. Although, I liked the first few hours of the book, though. I was like, I was like, this is my jam. You wanted the book to be about deliverators. I fucking did. You know what? I, if, if the book had been about Kira protagonist, the sword fighting super pizza delivery dude. Fifteen hours later, you're going like, what the fuck? Why do I care about Samaria? <laughs> I just want pizzas, man. Let me tell you, at least there was a few sword fights in the book. Yeah, and honestly, the freaking narrator, the guy reading this. Oh! He, he was... Davidson? Yeah, he's gold. That guy was genius. Jonathan Davis, yeah. Props to that guy. He got through this, and he didn't, he didn't break character at all and just laugh at the novel. <laughs> or they did some really good editing. <laughs> yeah, or that. Or there's some hilarious cutting room floor. Um, so do we move on now to the part where you two roll dice and I look at you jealously for your dice roll? Yeah. I'll just, I don't, you, you, know what I, you know what I realize is that I just really got bad luck with fiction books. You know, you know I, I am going to make a comment. Out of the fiction books we've read in this book club, I still dice. think, I'm going to say, I think American Gods is the best one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm gonna say it. I think American Gods is the best one, and it also was a meandering book. I apologize to listeners. That was our season zero where we did not record our book club. Highest wins or loses if you don't like choosing. <laughs> Garner got a fourteen. I got a nine. Okay, here we go. Oh boy. <laughs> Let's see what I got. It's gotta access the dossier. Yeah. I have to go online because I'm trying to scrap my my stuff. Alright. That's fine. I made my list during the first half of this podcast. so. <laughs> you, there you go. I, I might win. <laughs> so let's see here. I have some books. Um, oh yeah, there's the Checklist Manifesto. You guys got to turn that down last time. But I'm going to put it back up again. And now I'm going to find my little blue book. Where I probably wrote down some books... Why is it not here? Uh oh. I got. I try to get the place fairly organized. Here we go. Ooh. Here we go. Here's my other books. On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Or The Social Contract by Jean Jacques Rousseau. What was that second one? The Social Contract. I mean the one before that. On Liberty. On Liberty. By John Stuart Mill. Hmm. So it's the Checklist Manifesto, which is a more modern, like, 
book. It pretty much is, you know, all the science and studies about checklists. It's actually pretty, uh, sounds pretty interesting, actually. Yeah. And uh, the social contract. I mean, there's another book that I had in mind, and I can see that I, I'm not sure why I don't have it here. Because I had a book that I actually just, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to actually double check. Yeah, go for it. I think it's The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. Let's see. The... So I want to do either The Social Contract, The Inevitable, or The Checklist Manifesto. Interesting. People bring up um, why I chose these books. Um, I listen to Econ a lot. Well, first, let's uh, start, start off by giving a formal list. A formal list. So oh. tell us some of the options. You rolled the highest. What I rolled have? the highest. So my our options are the Checklist Manifesto. Okay. The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly. I actually don't know who wrote the Checklist Manifesto. It is... Atul Gawand. Atul Gawand. And then uh, and then this is an old book called The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And why did you choose these books? Yeah, these these books. So, um, the Checklist Manifesto is really interesting to me. As an aircraft mechanic, I did a lot of things based on checklists. Um, then, as I started looking around, it turns out that checklists, or even just the concept of them, weren't always there, right? They, they're historically new. Yeah. So, some people actually did some studies on them and wrote a whole book about, like, how much um, checklists change things and um, about them. And I thought... You know, as dry as that sounds, um, the just the concept that it might be historically novel to have a checklist made me want to read the book. Um, the second book, The Inevitable, is... Um, so I do a lot of econ stuff, and people talk about, like, how technology could, like, end up throwing us out of our jobs or changing our future in a way that is uncomfortable for humans. And people have this discussion a lot. Uh, but these discussions tend to be from either from a layman's perspective or from doomsayers. And um, this guy was recently, Kevin Kelly was recently on Freakonomics, and he talked about the topic briefly. And then I was like, yeah, so he actually has an educated and informed opinion on the matter, wrote a whole book about it, and I was like, I want to read this guy's doomsday scenario. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, and it's uh, but it's just talking about like what sorts of technologies and things could like radically change our lives. So in a way, it's it's a little bit like science fiction, like like the stickers. Yeah, like the stickers. Yeah, like the stickers. Well, it's a little bit like science fiction. Yeah. Except for it's actually just it's just a dude speculating who has an opinion on the matter. Okay. So uh, that could be fun, and then um, in gaming forums and gaming circles, and there's all this discussion about like your rights on the internet and censorship and all this other stuff um, and just like our behaviors in society um, the social contract often gets referenced turns out that Jean-Jacques Rousseau had like a pretty strong influence on the uh, on the founding fathers and a lot of uh, 18th century philosophy yeah and so I thought about it and I was like yeah actually I've never read the book and it's not too long it will probably be written in old tiny language though so fair warning but i have a feeling it will at least be enlightening if anything what, what one's that called it's called the social contract social contract i pulled up the wrong one ah here it is 
Okay. And those are the three? Those are the my three. I see. I would say that my first choice is probably Checklist Manifesto. Yeah? Um, I like figuring out how people do things and the way in which they do things. And especially if checklists are a new thing, that's interesting to me. Out of curiosity, though, which is your least favorite option? Social contract. Okay. That old time and language. Ooh. Let's not do that. Okay, so. <laughs> and then, Josh, I'm just curious. What is your least favorite option? Hmm. I am kind of leaning towards the checklist manifesto. As your least favorite. But not a very strong lean. Okay, let's say it was your least, right? Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to pretend here. <laughs> you can do that. I will let you. I'm going to pretend, mate. You're allowed to pretend. Sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting out no paper now. Uh, yeah, I'm curious now. So we have Josh and Alex, and then I have the... Check, and I have con, and I have in. And so essentially, Josh, yeah. I could say that you gave the checklist manifesto a one, and Alex gave it a three. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so then I would ask Alex, if you could not get the checklist manifesto, what would be your second favorite choice? Inevitable. Inevitable. Okay. I would say that's inevitable, considering what she just labeled the first two as. Okay, so based on my scoring, <laughs> the Checklist Manifesto and Inevitable are um, equally scored. Equally scored. But um, Inevitable is moderate for both of you, whereas uh, one person really wins on Checklist Manifesto, and one person, I guess, really loses. Hmm. If this helps your decision making at all, there you go. I did it mathematically. I'm gonna peace out now and get some water while you two discuss the your choices. Let the debate begin. What what did you say interests you about checklists? Just the social aspects of checklists. Um, yeah. Looking it up, it's it kind of has a medical angle. How a physician pulled a kid out of a pond and saved him with checklists. Um. But it also goes into business checklists and how people do things to get things done better. Hmm. Interesting. Could you get into a drier subject? You know, I'm, I think I might be game for this. I'm, 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 I mean, I'll be honest. I have no idea if the book is good, right? Right, right. Like, I, I really don't know. Yeah, Garner has not read these previously like I did so he gets he doesn't get to have the uh, the shame of failure that I just suffered <laughs> also your math is wrong I'm just kidding is it wrong because you have two ones and a two for Josh yeah it's true oops oops so technically they all write the same oh math is fun um, oh his highest was you didn't ask his highest. No, you didn't. Well, but his second highest is this, so yeah. here we go. They actually did all write the same. How did this happen? Because math. No, because <laughs> you guys are very interesting people. So, um, yeah, right. I'm good to go with Checklist Manifesto. Okay. I'm game. Sounds okay, good. I mean. So, Checklist Manifesto will be next month's book bash by author... How do you say this? A tool... Gawanda? That would be my guess. There we go. 
From my understanding, the book is actually like a collection of stories where like Chekhov saved the day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I but I believe it also involves some history and whatnot. I heard a lot of the book choices that I get actually come from either history podcasts, philosophy podcasts, or econ podcasts. They'll bring up the book, yeah. and if some podcast I listen to, they bring up the book. I'm like, well, these guys thought the book was relevant. I'll listen to it. So that's why we ended up listening to Thinking Fast and Slow. I thought that book was pretty good. So I'm looking forward to Checklist Manifesto. All right. And it looks like it's only a six-hour listen. We'll, you'll be able to skate. He's cheesy. <laughs> and if you hate it, it's only six hours. Think about that. Yeah, not like it's what not, I did to you. It's not like 16 hours. You know, actually... um. Uh, while listening to this book, uh, um, so crash, I kept looking at the time that Elantris was. Oh no! <laughs> I kept going like, you know, I kept wondering. I was like, you know, Elantris didn't make me quite squirm as bad, but I think it's because of Elantris. Maybe I just cared less. I don't know. Like when I listened to Elantris, I just sort of like. I knew nothing was happening is what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> Elantris was definitely our um, our turd of season zero. Yeah, like I you know, I just knew nothing was happening, so maybe I could zone out. And you know what's interesting about Snow Crash is I could never really tell like if something important was about to happen. You know, like if I could if I could sum up my strong feeling about the book, I was just like waiting in anticipation for the plot. Anytime. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening so much. I think this is the podcast that we finally earn our name, Book Bash. We have bashed Snow Crash. And hopefully you'll join us next week for the Checklist Manifesto. And have a great month. Yeah. Yay. Woohoo. <laughs> it was Book Chainsaw. Ooh, that Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed Sound effects provided by the F Sound Band and music provided by Ben Sound. Want to tell us what you thought of our review in the comments? And join us next time on Book Bash!